Hello, and welcome to the Alchemy of Art podcast with your host, Addie Hirschton. Join us as we share folk tales and true stories about artists and the creative process. Our quote of the day was said by Charlotte Bronte. She said, conventionality is not morality. Hello, everyone. My name is Addie Hurston. I'm a contemporary impressionist painter, art instructor, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and the creative process to inspire you and help you move forward. And I will admit, uh, inspire myself and help me move forward. On the show, I interview artists from a wide variety of mediums so that we can learn from each other's processes and philosophy. Today's podcast features an interview with the artist Kyle Harrington and the story of the works of the Louvre Museum, what happened to them during World War II, and the story of the painting The Mona Lisa. So I just have to add, guys, that in my interview with Kyle, there's two parts, one at the very beginning and then in the middle for about a minute where there's a staticky, crackly sound and the, it just doesn't sound quite right. I know it's there. I th- thought it was my old microphone and now I've got a new microphone and still it's happening. So I'm investigating this mystery and sorry for the inconvenience. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Kyle Harrington. Kyle Harrington earned a BFA in painting from Ball State University in 2006. He's currently the director of exhibits and events and director of the Broad Ripple Art Fair at the Indianapolis Art Center. Much of Kyle's artwork incorporates themes of outer space and humor. In an interview with Emily Taylor, he stated, if it doesn't make me laugh, then I don't like it. I think I'm one of the only artists who hopes that people will laugh at my work. Humor is a very important entry point into bigger issues. You can find out more about Kyle Harrington at kyleaharrington.com. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks for having me. All right, so first question, what drew you to becoming an artist and landing your job at the Art Center? Oh, wow. Um, So... It's kind of a tough one. I mean, I always did art growing up, um, but it was sort of just a background thing. I never really thought about it as a full-fledged career for a long time. I was really into science um, in middle school and high school, and I thought I was actually going to be a water treatment specialist. (laughs) Yeah, so I was very into that. It it seemed a pretty viable career. Um, I was in science Olympics all you know so I was very into that kind of world but I also had always done art at the same time okay. um, and I moved around a lot growing up too so we moved to Evansville for my last years of high school and there wasn't really a robust science program in that school so I kind of focused more on the art part and then found out that there was this uh, open house at Ball State and said okay I'll go check it out it was the art department Um, went there, brought some artwork, not really thinking anything of it, and they offered me a scholarship, an art scholarship, and that's when I started to think, oh, this is sort of a viable career. 
so yeah, it was it was just it was kind of I, I don't want to say a hobby for a long time, but it was just always in my life. But I had never thought that it could be something that was lucrative, I guess. Um, and also, I always had this notion of artists being less than intellectual, I guess, in the back of my mind. I think, like, what you're shown um, through the media and TV, I mean, you know, when there's an artist role in a TV show or a movie or something like that, they're always kind of, like, the ditzy art teacher or, you know, the really spaced out airhead type. Um, and so when I realized that, oh, wait, most successful artists are actually, like, very critical yeah. and intellectual and academic, I really liked that a lot. So I think that that blended sort of my interest in science with art, and I was like, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to do it. So that's how I kind of got into art. And then uh, while I was at Ball State, I studied painting. And I kind of had the notion that I was going to be a professor. Um, I thought I would take a year or two off after I graduated and then go to grad school and then kind of enter into that system of academia. Um, so when I graduated Ball State, I moved back to Indianapolis. And, you know, I, I worked a lot of odd jobs. I, I was a test grader. I worked at an apple orchard. I... Um, what else did I do? I worked at some restaurants. Um, I was a telemarketer for a little bit too. So um, all the time that that was going on, I was trying to get an art job, but it was really difficult to kind of break in. I didn't have any roots really in Indianapolis or connections. Um, so a job opened up at the art center um, and it was a part-time studio and gallery technician. I saw the job at like four o'clock in the morning and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to apply to this. And you know, and then I got called back the next day, and that's kind of how I was introduced uh, to the Indianapolis Art Center. I thought it was just going to kind of be a stop along the way of me going to grad school, but I really fell in love with what they did there yeah. and the people, um, and I really was drawn to the classes and the environment of community that they had there, and that it wasn't stuck in some sort of like academia, um, right. where my mind was kind of at before that. Um, and it just, I mean, for lack of a better term, it really like the mission seduced me into really enjoying the job and the people and the teachers and the artists that we were showing. And so I really just threw myself into that world and moved my way up along the ladder when there was job openings and then became uh, a full-time exhibitions associate there. Um, and then became the director of exhibitions and then the director of the broader art fair. So it's been kind of a, a, an organic journey to where I'm at now and it's you know it's something that I would not have guessed that I would be doing at this point but I'm really glad that I'm doing it and I love doing it so <laughs> yeah so several things come to mind that from what you said my parents were scientists <laughs> and so I'm not a scientist <laughs> but I think it's interesting that that stereotype of the artist is being really flaky and in fact sometimes um, I've seen like I posted something on Facebook once and, and a friend said something implying, well, the best artists are insane, like they're crazy, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think we were talking about Van Gogh or something, but do you have any thoughts on that? Because certainly if you are a professional artist, you've got to have your shit together, you've got to have your ducks in a row, and you've got to know what you're doing, otherwise you're not going to eat, or, you know, in, and we juggle often several different jobs and all these things that we do, any more thoughts on that yeah i mean i think yeah there is that sort of stereotype of you know the tortured insane soul that's an artist i guess but you know i i found that to be successful for lack of a better term in the art world you have to be able to sort of harness that um energy you have to be able to really focus that 
sort of insane vision that you've got <laughs> into the work. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a balance between being a visionary, but also being able to promote yourself and and kind of funnel that into like a laser focus of okay, this is what I'm doing, and and I'm gonna do it. Um, I I you know, and I think that's where. It's interesting for me in this role because, you know, I, I'm now a curator, but I started as an artist and I still do my own art. So it's interesting to see both sides of that. It's interesting as an artist to be able to take care of myself and, and, and promote my own stuff. But I also see the role of curators and arts administrators elevating and helping artists that can't necessarily do that themselves and being resources for them. So I think that that's sort of where like that marriage between arts administrators and artists lives. And, you know, not everybody can be, you know, some people are just idea people. They're not necessarily good at the fine details of stuff. That's where they really rely on support systems to help them, you know, make this vision, finite vision into uh, reality, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I think, yeah, all artists, I do think, you know, we are a little offbeat, I would say. Um, and, but I think that's true for any other industry, too. I mean, going back to scientists, I mean, I think they're sort of like the mad scientist <laughs> archetype that you think, you know. And so I think that what makes artists different, though, is that we are really putting our points of view and our perspectives on display for people. Um, and with art, as opposed to science or something that's more traditionally academic, you know, people are seeing the whole process of that. Um, people are seeing the end result of this, you know, wild hair that you've got. Whereas like, you know, something a little bit more finite like science, okay, well, you know, you have the drug, you have the cure, you know, they're not seeing all of the labor and, and, and all of the in-between and the struggling and the going back and forth. Um, they just kind of have their finished product. Whereas like art, you can see the artist's hand in that and you can really see like where they're wavering, where they're thinking. Not all the time, but I think that's something that I'm really interested in is kind of seeing that journey. And I think that's where artist statements are important. And I think that's where transparency in the art world is also important. Um, being able to see that journey from people going to point A to point B is really interesting, I think. Yeah, and then one other thing that you said that I thought was interesting was that you love the Art Center, and and I do too. And I, I I have a couple theories as toward why. One is that we're not a, a we're not an art institution where you have to be juried in, and so then it just leaves so much more opportunity for everyone coming in and finding their voice and figuring out what they want to say with art. And, um, and then also, you know, our gallery space, which you curate, is not, it's not for profit. I mean, people can buy the pieces there if they'd like, but that's not where we get all of our funding. So consequently, it doesn't have to be one of those galleries where if, if we don't sell stuff, we are going to close our doors. And so that just takes that pressure off. So it can be this space where other things can be said other than just what might sell. And I think that's why it's such an awesome place or one of the things. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I really like the Art Center because I get to see so many different types of art and I get to see every kind of pie piece of the art world. Right. Thinking back to what I had the vision of when I started art school was, oh, I'm going to go into academia, I'm going to be a professor. I'm so glad that I'm not doing that right now. And that's a very important part of the art world, but it's a very specialized part of the art world. Sure. 
And so I get kind of the best of everything because I'm working with, you know, emerging artists. I'm working with professional artists. I'm working with people that are viewing it as a hobby, people that are wanting to get their feet off the ground and, and be exhibiting artists, people that have no um, desire to be exhibiting artists that are just doing it as a form of therapy or their break from the week. I really get to see that from like 50,000 feet and see every single part of it. And it's something that is so important to me because I get to see every turning piece. I get to see the big picture of it. Um, you know, with the broader art fair, these are craftspeople that are, you know, traveling the country and uh, making handmade work and then selling it to make a living. That's totally different from people that are doing sort of the more high art, really conceptual stuff. But I get to do all of that. You know, I get to see everything in between. And I get to see people finding their voice and navigating this journey, which is really interesting. We, we show uh, youth work a lot too, which is really important, I think. But I'm not pigeonholed in one type of art or in one type of artist, which I really love. And I think that it just really lets me play nicely with all these different sort of uh, types of artists or all these different uh, viewpoints, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I never get bored of it. It's I, I get to see every single piece. Yeah. It's really nice, and I like it a lot. And I think, um, you know, I am given a lot of I'm given a long leash I would say because I'm not beholden to selling artwork to fund the programs you know I mean we're not a sales driven gallery which is really nice so I can show art for art's sake and I can give people a chance that maybe might not otherwise be able to show their work um and you know going back to what the art center was started as as a WPA project to support artists that's something that i also try to really fight for is when i can giving artists stipends giving them the opportunity to sell their work um giving them transportation costs to ship their work or drive their work here and that's really important to me as well i think um because there are you know real world considerations when you're an artist um, you know, I think a lot of people think, okay, you just put your art up and have the show and then take it down and it's done. But there's a lot of, uh, there's a real financial responsibility with that stuff too. And so while we're not driven by gallery sales per se, um, I do want to have a really well-rounded basis of opportunities for artists. I think that's really important. Right on. Okay. Can you explain the drive behind your text-based Naughty Words paintings? So to describe these for people, you've done a, a bunch of pieces that are you know like there's like the galaxy with stars and then you'll have text over top of them some of which is uh, pop culture quotes and things like that and um and they're really funny but wh what's the what's between the lines i think those really started out as sort of sketchbook um studies really once i got out of college and i was sort of trained to do painting, you know, the specific way, um, you know, I was looking for shows, I was looking for opportunities and ways to show my work, and I was very much stuck in sort of, this is what I have to do for it to be acceptable. And so I was always doing the kind of blue humor type of stuff, like in private, in secret kind of, because it was really interesting to me. And I don't know what it was, but one day I was just like, you know, I'm just going to make this a painting. I'm tired of doing these other paintings that I don't really care about. And I think what really drove a lot of the themes of that stuff was, I mean, I was a really big television watcher as a kid. I mean, I just love television and I think like soaking up popular culture is really interesting to me. And I'm a really big people watcher too. So in my sketchbooks, 
you know, I, I call them sketchbooks, but if anyone looks at them, they're a lot more like, they're not journals, but yeah, so if you look at my sketchbooks, they're not traditional sketchbooks in the sense where there's not a lot of actual drawing in them. It's a lot of like pieced together phrases and sentences that I hear um, or see. You know, I'll be in public and sort of eavesdrop on, accidentally on someone's conversation and think, oh my gosh, that's a really interesting way that they worded that. Or, um, you know, I've not heard that phrase and it's making me laugh for some reason and I'm not sure how I'm going to use it, but I'll write it down. And so a lot of times those paintings, they start out as sort of the space background or just that sort of thing. And then the quotes kind of come in later floating into space. I, I don't know. It's really, it's really interesting with social media and all that stuff too. I think, you know, people are, people are not as apt to censor themselves lately. I don't think, you know, I mean, I think that there's that sort of wall up that you feel safe behind your computer um, and you can sort of troll on Twitter or comment on Facebook and, and that sort of stuff. And so I was really interested in taking these things that people say that are kind of outrageous and removing it from that context and then just putting it in sort of like a very sterile void, which is why the, where the space came from. And kind of being able to look at that phrase or that word in sort of in a clinical way and get people's reactions from that. With those paintings, something that I love doing is watching people look at them because some people are offended by it. Some people think it's funny. You know, I, I like, there's so many different ways for people to look at it and it's just really fun to, to look look at and I don't want people to say oh I love this artwork just because they know who I am so like I like to kind of like hide and just gauge what people are <laughs> reacting and I think I think that that's really important I think that we get really pigeonholed in like our own bubble and our own environment and so I think to be able to see like the other side of it that's really important too so I like it when people don't like my work necessarily I guess if that makes sense and I'm not out of like a shock art perspective or something like that I mean it's and it's not something that I'm striving to do but I think it's really important to take that in and to realize that that's also a reality as well um, I think you need to see multiple sides of things you need to see the big picture which is kind of a recurring theme in my life when it comes to art I mean I want to see the beginning and the end and everything in between so yeah it's interesting what you said about people posting things and they feel safe behind their computer. And I think there's a double-edged sword because you know, sometimes people feel so free because it feels so safe that they'll share things that maybe it's great to get off their chest or there can be some real growing. Um, and then other times people will say things they never would say to somebody else's face, which is then a problem. <laughs> so yeah, my thoughts on that. But um, also it, Reminds me of Duchamp's toilet. And, you know, if you look at all the art history books, they're like, oh, art was making fun of itself. Art is looking back on itself. Do you like that piece? Yeah, I do think it's important for art to be self-referential. Um, I think that art can't exist really in a vacuum. It needs to reflect upon itself and reflect upon the time that it's being made. And that can mean a lot of things. That doesn't mean that all art has to be like heavy hitting and political. Um, I think some of my favorite work is stuff that's really nuanced and understated and really you have to spend time with it to really get what they're saying. And a lot of times what they're just saying is something really simple too. I mean, um, you know, looking at paintings or, or 
uh, I, I've been having a conversation with one of my college friends actually about plein air painting, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting because I, you know, being at the art center and seeing so many different types of art, I kind of am lucky enough that I don't get pigeonholed into one taste level or not, you know, but I, my friend who I went to, to um, college with started out very contemporary um, and now he's doing plein air oil painting. And, you know, I had a conversation with somebody about, is that contemporary or not? And I said, of course it is because it's reflecting the world around us. And so I think that not everything has to be edgy and conceptual. And I think that sometimes you can just enjoy the act of making art and finding those little moments of, of reflecting reality. And I think that's why techniques like that are really important. But of course, I also do like sort of the cutting edge stuff as well. I mean, I like it all. I really do. I think it's all valid and all has a place in sort of the hierarchy of the art world. But yeah, I, I do like stuff that's that's self-referential and a bit tongue-in-cheek as well. I mean, that's my own personal kind of taste. Not taste, but it's my own personal way of working, I suppose. But I do find myself gravitating towards more nuanced things as well. What's the most interesting piece of art you've ever seen, other than your own workforce? That's how I mean, I look at so much art. The best thing that I've ever seen, or the most interesting piece that I've ever seen, I really liked Juju Chicago's Dinner uh, Party. I saw that at the Brooklyn Museum in, in the spring, um, and I've never seen the person. I've, I've seen it in books, of course, all the time. And I think walking into the enormity of that installation is something that just really blew me away. You can't, you can't get that from a book. You can't get that from an image on the internet. All right. So I know you've gotten pushback from folks who like to censor the work that we have at the Art Center. What have you learned from that experience, and what are your thoughts on censorship? Well, something that I really like about the Art Center is everyone there really does change that idea that we don't censor work. Um, from day one, I started there under Joy Summers. I mean, I remember her saying that. And Carter Wolf, her and Patrick Flaherty, all of them have been really staunchly online we don't censor things, which I think is so important. You know, it, it, it's tough. It's tough when you're showing work in a public realm. It's tough, too, when you work for an organization that there's a lot of youth involved. I think that that kind of throws a wrench into things. Um, so, I mean, it is a struggle. I don't show or curate things to be shocking on purpose. I think there has to be artistic merit behind it, which I try to tell people all the time that, you know, I'm not going to show something just to show something because it's shocking, but if it's something that makes sense in the context of, of you know, what we are showing um, and has validity and artistic merit, I think that's for sure legitimate. You know, and I, it's funny, too, because there's a lot of different types of work that people will or will not want to censor, which I think is really interesting. Um, you know, nudity is a really big one, obviously. But, you know, we have figure study classes at the Art Center. We have open studios with nude, nude and clothed models. Um, and that's something that I fight for because it's, you know, a tradition, you know, steeped in history. And, and I think it's something that's really important continuation of art history and the art world. And so for people to still be doing that, I think it's important, and I think it needs to be seen. Other things, you know, curse words or violence. Um, we had a piece in a show, oh man, it must have been four or five years ago, but it was sort of a take on sort of like a Hieronymus Bosch sort of 
um, earthly delight sort of thing, okay. um, but contemporary, contemporary, and um, you know, people really didn't like it because there was a lot of like political um, heft to it. Um, you know, there was world leaders doing kind of crazy things in this sort of vignette of a painting, um, and it got a lot more pushback than I thought it would. Um, but I think it's important to show all sides. I think it's important, you know, again, sort of the theme of, of my life and, and my art perspective, it's important to show everything. And, you know, censorship doesn't just, censorship doesn't just exist to um, censor things that are offensive. There's other types of censorship as well. I mean, the type of work that I show, I think I have to show a big spectrum because that could be viewed as censoring traditional artwork. Um, you know, I want to show the continuation of all these different mediums and styles and techniques. Um, and, and that's something that I think the art center really excels at is showing all of that different stuff. You know, there's some galleries that are so contemporary driven and they would never show a still life. You know, there's some galleries that are sales driven, you know, that only show still lives. And so I think being able to show installations and youth work and things that are heavy hitting political pieces and things that are a little bit more ethereal, um, I think having that sort of kaleidoscope view of all of the different pinpoints of the art world is something that only makes people's understanding of the whole thing that much richer. My last question for you, um, perhaps isn't fair because it's so big. Uh, what do you, <laughs> what do you think is going to happen next in the art world? Well, I mean, I think we just had our um, we just had our art from the Heartland show last summer, this past summer, and something that I did notice with that show, uh, Minnie Taylor Ross juried that show for us. What we have an outside curator come in and, and jury the show, and um, we had actually been talking to Travis DiNicola, um in a segment about the show, and something that we noticed was a lot of the work that we got into that show was really you know, kind of making a political statement, which I thought was really interesting. And I only see that happening a little bit more. I think when there are really like heavily divided times in the United States or in the world in general, it's the role of the artist to reflect what's going on and to use all of those topics as entry points into facilitating a discussion about things. So when stuff does get really tumultuous, um, I find that art really serves as a viewpoint into that stuff. And so I think that that's immediately what's happening, I would say. Um, a lot of people that I know are making art um, in response to things that are going on in the world. And I guess you can say that that's always happening, but more so than ever, I feel like people really want to get a statement out there. And they really want to put their viewpoint out for the world to see. I mean, I think it's important to you know, exposure is important, uh, visibility is important, and, you know, sometimes artists aren't the best at verbalizing, you know, their viewpoints, so they do that through their art, and I think that that's something that's happening, and I, I would guess it's going to keep going for a while, would be my guess. Well said. Well, thank you, Kyle. I'm, I'm excited to have interviewed you. Lots of meat there, so good stuff. Thanks. So I have two stories for you today. The first is the Mona Lisa. Around the year 1503, Leonardo da Vinci created the famous painting, the Mona Lisa. It depicts a gently smiling woman with her hands neatly folded in front of her. The woman was most likely Lisa Garadini, the wife of a wealthy silk merchant. 
Mona is a shortened version of Madonna, meaning my lady in old Italian. Modern Italians, however, call the painting La Gioconda, meaning the happy one. The Mona Lisa was bought by the French king Francois I after da Vinci died in 1519. It later became part of the Louvre Art Museum's collection in France. The painting was admired by many people, but didn't truly become famous until its mysterious theft in 1911. A painter, Louis Bedrood, came to the Louvre to visit the Mona Lisa painting, only to discover that there was an empty spot on the wall where the painting should have been. He contacted the security guards, who assumed that the painting had been taken for photographing. It was then discovered that the painting was... Missing. The Louvre shut its doors for a week to try to solve the crime. Grasping at straws, the authorities accused a French poet by the name of Guillaume Apollinaire for the theft. Apollinaire had once stated that the Louvre should be burnt down. They assumed this was an act of revenge against the museum. Apollinaire was arrested and imprisoned. Apollinaire then accused another artist, who you've heard of, Pablo Picasso, of the crime. Picasso was brought in for questioning. Eventually, both Picasso and Apollinaire were found innocent. The true culprit of the crime was finally discovered two years later, in 1913. The thief, Vincenzo Perugia, tried to sell the painting to an Italian art museum. He was caught and sentenced to six months imprisonment. He had been able to steal the painting when he was working for the Louvre as an employee. He had simply hidden it under his coat and walked out the back door. When asked why he did it, Perugia claimed that he believed the painting belonged in his homeland of Italy. Obviously, another crazy nationalist. You can now visit the Mona Lisa in the Louvre Museum. It is protected under bulletproof glass. My thoughts on this story. Um, you know, people, when asked, you know, why do you love the Mona Lisa? Why, what's your interest in it? They'll often say, oh, it's her pleasant expression. It's, um, she's just so peaceful. But I think it's a little more than that. It's both that we don't really know who the real woman was, that there's, we have some speculation about who it is and, um, and why she sat for the portrait and all that, but we don't really know for sure. So there's a mystery there. And then when the painting was stolen, the mystery of who stole it was this absolute sensation in the newspapers. And when the culprit was found, I mean, can you imagine how exciting it was for them to get the painting back? Um, And I dare say that if the painting had never been stolen, maybe we would never have even heard of this painting before. I mean, there's a lot of other paintings that were created during the Italian Renaissance, which are a little more, uh, more interesting, uh, shows you a little bit more about the time period, so on and so forth. But I think there's a certain mystery that draws us to the Mona Lisa, and it's mostly because of the theft. Um, now I'm going to transition into my next story about the works of the Louvre Museum. 
1939, Germany invaded Poland. In response, France and Britain declared war on Germany. Fearing that bombs might be dropped in an attack on Paris, the curators of the Louvre Museum took action. The museum held many of the world's priceless works of art. Paintings by Rembrandt and Rubin, the Mona Lisa, to name a few, as well as many sculptures from ancient Greece. They were all housed in the Louvre, the old royal palace. The curators boxed up 3,690 items from the museum's collection. Yes, 3,690 items. It's an enormous amount of work. And these works of art were then shipped out of Paris to various remote countryside locations. Over the next few years, the collection of art traveled throughout France in the hopes of evading being seized by the German army. Um, this tremendous feat was successful. When the war ended in 1945, every single one of the 3,690 items were returned to the Louvre Museum. Every single one. It's amazing. Um, what I love about this story is how so many people rallied behind this art collection, making it a top priority to get it out of harm's way. Um, I'm sure, you know, at personal risk, but they valued that artwork so much that they made it happen and nobody was greedy and stole any of the pieces <laughs> in all this transition and mess. It was all brought back because they value it as a core part of their culture their biggest national treasure. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about that, there's um, a great book called Saving Mona Lisa, The Battle to Protect the Louvre and Its Treasures During World War II. Gives you a lot more details. Both of these stories can be found in my book, The Alchemy of Art Stories for the Classroom. Announcements. I recently gave away my Thanksgiving giveaway painting, and I was happy that it went to uh, Jane Duchemin, who is a student of mine at the Art Center. Congratulations, Jane. Uh, it was nice to get to put it in her hands. Other times that I've done that, it's been had to ship away to different states and far away, and I was very happy that my random number generator selected Jane. Every Thanksgiving, I give away a painting to someone who is on my newsletter list. So if you want to put your name in the hat for next year, you want to go to my website, azurefineart.com, and sign up for my newsletter. This concludes our Alchemy of Art podcast for today. May these stories about art and the creative process inspire you. May you find your voice. You have been listening to the Alchemy of Art podcast. To find out more about Addie Hurston and her work, go to azirfineart.com. That's A-Z-H-I-R-F-I-N-E-A-R-T.com.